0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Jason John Whitehead, known as J.J. Whitehead, who is a Canadian comedian currently writing on the Jim Jefferies show in the U.S. And he came out for the Edinburgh Fringe, where we sat down in my flat in Edinburgh and had a delightful chat uh, over tea for me and uh, a herbal tea for him. I just think he's a delight to talk to. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, if you are in Melbourne, please come to Savage on the 10th of September at the Malthouse Theatre. Email me at at gmail.com if you would like an extra ticket or if you can't afford a ticket or if you would like to come Or if you can't come but just want to say hello, I am very excited about it. It is a a massive um, deal for me. And once I'm allowed to announce all of the details of the deal, I will also tell you the secret backstory behind the deal um, of me being extremely good at business, Um, which I normally am not. But I did some real sweet moves. Um, So that said, uh, I will let you get on with listening to this episode and I will talk to you next week. Uh, you are having tea with
1: Alice.
0: Who are you and what are you drinking?
2: Well, my name is Jason John Whitehead. I'm known as JJ Whitehead and I'm drinking a lovely herbal tea that you just made me. Yes, yes. Yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's oat puk- flour. Yeah, it's a puka, puka tea. I'm not really, a, I'm not a hot drink guy hot drink aficionado but
0: well you're I doing,
2: trust your choice
0: you're doing well so far
2: mm. in,
0: it's delicious I mean, you're not drinking it in the wrong direction or yeah
2: I'm holding the little handle chummy
0: correctly it's not it's not a complex process but you're yeah. nailing
2: it you've done really well i uh, it's taste it tastes very herbally
0: good so. that is what mm. you asked for I'm uh, and I'm drinking a sort of a matcha sencha blend Ooh. Which is uh, a, green, a green tea.
2: <laughs> I'm lucky that you explained it, because when you said that, I had no clue.
0: Uh, okay. So, matcha is sort of powdered green tea, and Sencho is a relatively high grade of green tea in this in the Japanese style.
1: Oh, right.
0: Um, so, mm-hmm.
2: what
0: have you been wrestling with, JJ?
2: What have I been wrestling with? Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the third week of the Edinburgh Festival, so I guess overall we're, we're mostly wrestling with where we're at as artists, I think, at this point in the festival. If you're really absorbed... <laughs> In your, in your show. Mm. And like we just talked about briefly, like wrestling with the conclusion to your hour-long show that we've been, you know, we've been developing all this material. And,
0: and then s- do we just bin it and move on?
2: Yeah, in a lot of ways it feels like you, you do have to bin. That's, sometimes that's the process, isn't it? Unfortunately. I mean, I'm trying to record mine while I'm here as well because I want it to be a new album. But, uh, yeah, as far as being an artist goes and doing an hour-long show... Being in this market, because I live in America now, where you do a lot of 10-minute spots, and also I I tour with Jim Jeffries, so I open for him, and I do 25 to 30 minutes to bigger crowds, so more poppy kind of jokes. So that's my stand-up comedy career in America. So to write this one-hour show and bring it here to the Edinburgh Festival, it does feel... I don't know. Sad isn't the word, but I guess wrestling with is a good term because I just like I looked at it today. I got eight more performances of this, Remez. and then I don't know where it's gonna go, or it's just, or does it just sit on the shelf for?
0: Well, this a is a, few this is the months. question. I've also been wrestling with it, although it's, it's sort of maybe not as metaphysical. Uh, is well, on a more metaphysical level, what is this kind of art? Part of what makes stand up valuable is that it's in the room, that it is an experience shared only by you, and every performance is different, and the people in the room are the only people who are there. Yeah. The process of recording it, the process of um, turning it into television or into a podcast, as I've done before, is uh, you're giving something less than what was there in the moment.
2: Oh yeah, but I, at
0: the same time, you're also not losing everything that was that show by letting it fade into the distance in time.
2: Oh, entirely. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's the most you can do. You can never, you can. Yeah, I mean, you can never truly capture the live in the moment. Well, you if, know, it's like watching anything on television, even at like a sporting event, or even
0: live in, yeah. live in the moment. You so, uh, can't capture live in the moment.
2: Yeah. So unfortunately, it is. Yeah. There's no way to. It
0: can't be done, can it? can't. By, almost by necessity, if you're truly in the moment, you're not noticing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but then I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struggling with this a little bit recently because I was asked to do a special, like quite a fancy one, definitely the fanciest thing I've ever been asked to do in my stand-up career.
2: Yeah.
0: And they said, which show do you want to do? And I thought, of all my shows, Savage is the one that is my desert island show. Right. So if there's any show that's going to get this massive boost, I would like it to be that one. You know, it's the one that if you said you can't do anything else for the rest of your career, but oh, one hour, it yeah. would be that one. But now I've already done it as a podcast, and I feel like that might be a better way to do a show full stop. Like audio, I think, might might be a better way.
2: So what, you mean you made an audio recording of Savage and released it for free on... Audible. As a podcast, so
0: no, so as a just a free podcast, as a trilogy podcast,
2: right? But now you have an opportunity to do a more commercial version of it, and, yes. and with a set decoration and all that. Well, yeah. I think it's totally, I think that's two completely different things. It is
0: two should, completely different things, yeah. but I, I think I, I feel perhaps maybe the podcast might be the better version of the thing.
2: Yeah, well, it'll be different. I mean, the obviously the new one that you get to do for Amazon will be uh, the more commercial version. Yeah. And also, it will just be sentimentality to you, but it'll also give you some new fans who want to see that. They'll want to see this more commercial thing, and they'll discover you through that. Well,
0: the other thing that I struggle with about that is that I did this in in 2014, 2015, and then Hannah Gadsby did her thing, her fantastic show, Nanette. Yeah. Uh, And because this is a show that I wrote that it doesn't have a conclusion... It's a deliberately kind right. of uh, structural. There's a structural element to it. I worry that I will be compared to her as though I were copying her, even though I did my show before
2: she did hers. Oh yeah. Or um, I'll be
0: compared with her unfavorably, or I'll be compared with her. I just don't like this comparison. You shouldn't element. worry about
2: that at all. Like don't. Yeah, don't even. Don't even start to worry about that because Hannah's. Like Hannah did well. She, in a way, she broke the mold. I was gonna say even her. I, bet, yeah, even the version of Nanette that went to Netflix for Hannah. If you talk to Hannah, she'd probably tell you, "Yeah, that's not my favorite mode." At that point, she was already on her 140th performance of the show, or whatever it might be. And if even she would tell you, like, "Oh, I wish I could have had." I wish we could have got number thirty down, you know, just when it was starting to happen for. But yeah, comparisons never stop anyway. I mean, like I said, Jim Jim Jeffries even gets compared to Hannah in in America because they go Australian comedy and they, you know, and it's just which is, there, there is yeah they're two totally different. Well,
0: I'm forms getting this with Mythos so. uh, because Stephen Fry is doing his trilogy called Mythos, and people are like, well, <laughs> you did a trilogy, and your show is called Mythos, and
2: yeah. Uh, it's going to happen forever. That's I, part of that. That's just part of the. Was, like, being an art form, that's the only way they can. They can't. It, we're not a sport where we score winners and losers. You don't go up against somebody else and end up winning two to one or anything like that. Instead, critics just stand in the wings going, well, is this.
0: Is this more excellent? of
2: that? Or is it. Yeah, it and yeah, it's a, it's really a, doesn't matter.
0: I think perhaps the, the reason I'm feeling like it might have been a mistake to choose Savage was because it is. Of all my work, the one I am most sensitive about, and I'm about to put it out to the biggest audience. Well, that's great. Like it's the one that I can't stand to have criticised.
2: Right. <laughs> uh, okay. Well. <laughs> so well, just uh, yeah, head into the belly of the beast, then Fa- face your fears directly. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> here you go.
0: And uh, yeah, this is this is the life,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. It and and also, you know, in in it all fades away after many years anyway. So you'll get it down, and you'll look back ten years from now, and I'm sure it'll be the right choice. You'll be like, that was the one that I was most emotionally attached to. I'm glad I put it down then.
0: Yeah, but that's just confirmation and, bias, and, uh, isn't it? And, Everything uh, is always the right choice in retrospect, because otherwise oh, you can't Oh, definitely not.
2: I've, I've made some horrible choices. <laughs>
0: so <laughs> What would so. you change if you had to?
2: I wouldn't have, so I did a DVD, I had a DVD on Century, I recorded it at the Sydney Comedy Store in 2011, and I didn't realize this was one of my bigger opportunities, you know, I had a, like a three, uh, three market deal with America, Britain, and Australia, and I cut my hair all off before I recorded the DVD, and I'm really happy with all the material and everything, but I don't And I sold it for maybe one year after my shows and stuff. And I think it was on shelves in Australia, but it never even uh, Viacom or I think didn't even, because by the time I actually came back to Britain eight months later, my hair was already growing back. I've always been, this is such a stupid, superficial thing, but I couldn't, and I'm not, it's not like I'm Samson or anything like that. But I'm like, I can't believe I made this choice when I had one of these big opportunities in my career. So I cut all my hair off thinking, I'm going to be a clean cut, I'll, I'll have this look now for mm. the rest of my career, and this DVD will launch me into that, and instead I should have had the opposite idea of like, no, stick with the way I've looked for the whole 10 years that I had been building all this material and building this identity, and record myself on DVD in that fashion, and then move on afterward, then, then if I wanted to. So so that's, so that's I regret I regret that very much, but... So now it's all on YouTube. So there's whatever. There's two
0: things that are really interesting about that for me. One is this idea of like your brand that you have a sense of yourself and how you ought to look. Yeah. What would you say that is? Or how uncomfortable? Yeah. How, how you're uncomfortable
2: how looking? Yeah.
0: What could you? Can you like outline how you are comfortable looking? I'm or very comfortable with my
2: long hair. Mm-hmm. I feel quite loose. I I like sometimes I like being able to hide my face a little bit. I do like that as well and also i think maybe on just the influences that i grew up with and I'm, i was a 90s kid and i guess rock rock music for me was quite freeing i lived you know i lived uh, just a short ferry ride from seattle so mm-hmm. i used to so I was, and that was my high school years was the whole seattle music scene of the 90s and that's how uh, it made me feel great so that actually was my identity a lot and even though as time goes on you're, you're like are you just becoming somebody who's holding on to this, uh, moment in time, but that's, it made me feel free. And, you know, I had dreadlocks for the start of my comedy career. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but I had that as well. And so that was all kind of like faith, no more influence, you know, and Zach Della Roca. And
0: how does the current discourse about white men with dreadlocks strike you then in that context?
2: Oh, the whole, the whole, uh, cultural appropriation.
0: Has anyone done that at you?
2: Yes. I had a, I had some trouble with that this year.
0: Did you defend which yourself or did you back oh, yeah. down? Or? I defended
2: myself. But people get really angry. It's we- I don't know. It's a weird context. Yeah, context because, yeah, some people discovered, they discovered old pictures of me with, with my dreadlocks, which have been off my head for more than 10 years.
0: What did the conversation well, sound like?
2: Uh, one of my bosses on the show I was working on um, said to some of the complainants, um, well, how, how do you feel we deal with this? And then I was starting, but I was being funny about it at the time. I was like, oh, maybe you should suspend me for this offensive hairdo I had 10 years. Ago. And not, it wasn't even offensive 10 years ago. That's what I was trying to say. And then somebody who was complaining said, well, maybe 10 years ago, people didn't have the voice to stand up to you. And I was like, it's not, it didn't go, haircuts didn't go down like that in 2008. Um, and then yeah and then one of my superiors said do you feel that he should have sensitivity training and the person on the other side of the issue said not necessarily and I found that quite offensive I just, I just went the answer is no you should you should say no to that question because I'm plenty sensitive it's okay I didn't I didn't get. That I got dreadlocks in my twenties because it was freeing and it was liberating, and I was a performer, and I was influenced by other performers who had dreadlocks. It had nothing to do with whatever the the story is that they tried to paint in that moment, and you know.
0: Yeah, th- that's interesting. The the hairstyle things, the idea of of cultural ownership over over stuff. Yeah, I think is is an interesting argument, and it does definitely have two sides. And I, but at the same time, I think intent is also important.
2: Yeah, people aren't paying attention to intent anymore. They're just scoring. There's a okay. There's a, there's a little plague uh, in society right now where you're just scoring points for uh, pointing out the possibility of offense or the possibility of wrongdoing.
0: Well, there, there, there is a difference between somebody tripping over and knocking you into a wall and somebody deliberately knocking you into a wall.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: And there's a middle ground there where someone's careless and then they trip and knock you into a wall.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: I think all of those... And those are very, very, very important distinctions that I think everybody in the world should recognize. Yeah. The difference between... I was having dinner with Andy Zoltzman, his lovely family, the other night, and his daughter accidentally splashed some of the hot pot onto his son. And his son wept in sort of shock and, and pain from being burned. And his yeah. daughter apologized profusely. But everybody at that table understood that that was not a malicious
2: act. Yeah, exactly.
0: If, you know, if if his son grows up and is like, oh, my sister used to burn me at the lunch table... Exactly. There is a there is a difference.
2: Or even or even if you remove that even worse from to another degree of separation. So not just him, but another bystander goes, I hear back in two thousand and nineteen she burnt him with a hot pot, you know, and then it starts going that way. And it's not even you're not even telling it from a first hand experience anymore. I hear that Sarah Silverman just got thrown off have you heard about this? Yeah. Just happened last night.
1: But thrown off
2: it- a movie for a, for a sketch. quite a liberal sketch but obviously had maybe an offensive act in it but it's being but it has to be misinterpreted it has to be willfully misinterpreted in order to want to punish her now for something she did in 2007
0: well I think that's where it comes to uh, sort of I guess uh, it's either a lack of moral, moral relativism or too much moral relativism I'm not quite sure which one it is but that says that acts are uh Good or bad, irrespective of their context. Yeah. Which I I don't really follow. It's I mean it's you can say something like murder is always bad, for example. Then we have, even when you say something like murder is always bad, we do have cultural carve-outs for things like acts of war or defending your family, and we have legal carve-outs for things like self-defense, or you, you know, yeah, w- mental illness, or
2: yeah. I feel it. I feel it's like I feel it's tribal point scoring. That's what drives me nuts because everybody's driv- like driving themselves on this on this point scoring table. No matter what it is, it's usually social media driven. Whatever their favorite form of social media is. So I I find that no matter what the truth is behind what they can say, they're always thinking about how many points they can score by saying it. And that's a plague that I would like to remove.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think there are also people who are um, 100% sincere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it gets hard to negotiate because there are people in all sincerity who will say something like, it doesn't matter what you mean to say. What matters is the impact that you are having. Yeah. And that's a really reasonable sounding argument. But that's also, yeah. also raising the boundary between, for example, manslaughter and murder. Or right. accident and malice. Like, there are... Yeah. And, and I, it's sort of a, a very... The urge is a very schoolyard one to say, well, you never listened to me, which is a fact... You know, for, for a very long time in history people have been told that they didn't deserve a place at the table, that their opinions didn't matter, whether it's women or people of colour or people with disabilities, and, and we're still fighting back to kind of have a, an even-handed voice. But the urge, that, that urge to... The urge to make... to get even... Yeah. by ...by kind of an eye-for-an-eye eye situation... Right. Which I don't think is the best. It's very hard to be asked if you've been kicked and kicked and kicked to be the better man.
2: Right, yeah.
0: Particularly when people have used be the better man to keep you down. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be the better man.
2: Yeah, you should You should take all the kickings you can and, well, and always try to rise above. Well, no, it is true. You, you, you always have to
0: you know, if try I,
2: to rise above.
0: As somebody who was bullied at high school... And I have a platform now. I I don't know. I don't know if I would. I don't know if I could have, have met that in this in in this industry, particularly people who want to get even in that way.
2: No, I think there is a danger sometimes in our industry, in comedians anyway, of because a lot of us were bullied. A lot of us are. I mean, that's sometimes how you arrive at being a comedian. Is that yeah? You know all the power that was taken taken away from us or never given to us when we were kids because we were picked on or pushed into a corner. And then finally we can stand on stage and say how we feel and stick up for ourselves. But sometimes there are da- dangers of some... So there are some kids who do get the voice and then do use it to do a bit of bullying. That's true. I, know, I, I, and I they f- don't realize that they're doing the same thing that they rallied against.
0: I'm going to make an argument that's going to sound horrendous. <laughs>
2: yeah. You're going to call me a bully? No, 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 no,
0: no. <laughs> no. Uh, it's based on a, a friend of mine who is a woman who did some really, really, really wild stuff when she'd been broken up with. Yeah. Of just... She was very angry and rightfully angry, but she behaved in a way that was unacceptable. Yeah. And the thing that I thought at the time, and I'm not sure if this analogizes to a broader state of the world, the thing I thought at the time is she as a woman, as a woman who's normally calm, has never had to learn how to deal with her anger. Right. She hasn't learned what it is to be in a position of power and the responsibilities that come with having power. And say what you like about the misuses of power historically, which have been huge and vast... At least there was some. There has to have been some. Maybe I'm an idealist and have read too many books, but there was some sense for people who had power that they had some obligation that came with the power. Of course. Right? And I feel like that's what the check your privilege conversation should be. Isn't that Spider-Man?
2: <laughs> yeah. Isn't that also the lessons we learned from Marvel in this? Yeah. <laughs> but like but it, it seems totally,
0: like an obvious yeah, right, yeah. lesson of, of, of <laughs> we are fighting for power in the world, uh, most of us. And you cannot fight for power without also fighting for responsibility.
2: Yeah. Okay. Here's so this is this is another way that I feel like writing. So because I write on a, I write in a pretty intense Hollywood writer's room on mm-hmm. a political comedy show, mm-hmm. and uh, and I do. So I feel, and I'm maybe more moderate. To I'm definitely liberal. Like, I'm, liber- I'm extremely liberal about the things that matter in the world, and then I'm moderate about the things that don't, whereas I think some people are extreme liberal to the point where they want to tear people down. Mm. So to them, power is being able to take away power from people, and I don't agree with that. I feel that power is ra- raising people up, you know, and that's, so that's, so to what you were saying, that's how I feel, too. I don't like tearing people down at all, even no matter how you can pick holes in them, or I don't believe in the, well, it's cancel culture, isn't it? Mm. So I'm kind of against that, which I guess makes me a moderate or a, I don't know, right wing Nazi, I guess. Uh. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm just I'm not into trying to cancel people. In fact, I would rather, if there's somebody I don't like in power, I would rather use my energy or my position to raise to raise up somebody who I think can take on that person that yeah. I don't like. You well, know, it's an it like interesting this guy? thing. I'll you show th- you somebody better. Do
0: you, you think, think that has to do with uh, being older than you were? Do you think that if you'd come up at this, in, in this time oh, in when this you were era? younger, whether you would have bought into it? Well, I would,
2: <laughs> no, I would like to think I would still feel this way, mm. because I, I think this is a new thing, this tear down. It's oh, certainly not say. a new
0: thing, historically speaking, but it's new in this context, in this, and the, the, the structures and things that are available for doing it are, are new. But I've been thinking a little bit about the ways in which people tend to become more conservative as they get older. Right. As kind of a function of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like the idea of like social programs and so on and so forth, really positive ideas of of the government sorting things out for everybody. I don't think that people become more, more assholes as they get older. Some do. Right. But I think that as well as some people getting grumpier as they get older, part of getting older is seeing how the world works and how people run things and that everything that is run by people is deeply flawed and has unforeseen outcomes and everything's much more complicated than it looks on the surface and as a result if somebody says oh well we'll just do a program that'll fix that or we'll just you know whatever it happens to be we'll just equalize it in this manner you think of the time that you worked with the government to get a fence pulled up and you think yeah nah (laughs) <laughs> right just you know back off you know that, that idea of small government and so on and so forth which yeah. is so annoying and libertarian and often propagated by people who've never had to struggle in their lives and never needed help in their lives yeah but then you look at social programs that have gone wrong
2: and had because
0: they're run by people like i don't know right. if, does Correct. that follow does that make sense
2: yeah, a little bit. You know what, I have...
0: A little bit of sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes sense. I have trouble with the term libertarian. I think that I still don't get it. Because libertarians are, are on both sides of the political spectrum, aren't they? Yes. So I can't... Is it just the unify? Is the unifier just that they want small government? Is that the unifier, or is there something else?
0: More or less, yes. surely...
2: Okay, so does that mean a libertarian can never be a socialist...
0: Is yeah, that- well, well, it sort of depends, but it <laughs> basically—it's
2: it's, it's a hard one to define. That one,
0: as a, as a general rule, it, it the premise of it is that people are better at running their own lives than the government could be or would be. Right. Um, it just and that seems they're greedy. The, to me. So you can have sort of socially libertarian, and, and that's more the government should control certain things, but people should control other things. Basically, the breakdown I think is. It's either a very very optimistic view of human nature, or a very very optimistic view of where you would fall in a natural order hierarchy.
2: Okay, <laughs> like right. in a
0: Darwinian sense. Yeah, like often, which is
2: unfair, really. Yeah. So yeah, okay.
0: Which is a sort of an interesting thing, and then the other thing is a sort of maybe an overvaluation of Darwinian stuff, as the order of nature must be the best order. So the dominance of X type of person must right. indicate an, a sort of a moral superiority rather than a... Dom- and I, I I, always think about the peacock. Right. Of, like, the most elegant and artistic peacocks were not necessarily the ones that survived. The flashiest peacocks were the ones that survived. Oh, really? So, for example, imagine a peacock that had, like, beautiful, muted, subtle, like... Yeah. As, as though the peacock had a choice. But you know what I mean? This is, like... There could be a peacock that was 12 times as beautiful, but wasn't as flashy. Right. And the flashy one survived.
2: Right, that's not what I would have thought. In the natural
0: order, the Kardashians rise to the top of the heap and... Someone who might have a more subtle approach to feminism or beauty or right. art or vulnerability. It's
2: overlooked. And
0: yeah, the, the Kardashians have a very slick approach to vulnerability, to marketing their own uh, self-image. Right. And that rises to the top. But I don't think you would necessarily say that is the best. It's just the yeah. most powerful.
2: Yeah, or the most commercial, even. Yeah. The most, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So... I think about that when, when people are like, oh, well, you know, natural order arguments, whether it's to do with the dominance of men or the dominance of the free market or whatever it right. happens to be, those things aren't necessarily the best. And the state of nature oh, is a horrible place.
2: Yes, the, the watered-down version of everything is usually the thing that goes most mainstream. Yeah. So.
0: What else have you been wrestling with? The,
2: f- the flashy four, four, peacock. four. four, four. Um, I, it's not really wrestling or anything, but yeah, I, but I'm also, I'm going back to LA after this, so I don't consider it wrestling, but you know, I've been there for three years
1: mm-hmm.
2: now. Um, I'm getting, I'm on, heading on to my third visa. Um, I guess, te- cause technically I guess started visiting there like five years ago, made the move three years ago. Now I'm going on my third visa, but I lived over here for 15 years. So I don't call it wrestling, but I'm, I always, I felt homesick to want to come here. In the first place, and now I'm going back to L.A. I do feel like L.A. is home now, after three years. But man, I sure felt like London was home, after my last stint in London was like seven years long. So, call it wrestling if you will, but...
0: I'll call it wrestling a, if I wanna.
2: It's a general, uh, it's a general, like, you know, hobo bag on my, on my stick. Like, when am I gonna, when am I gonna stop and finally call a place home? So...
0: That's interesting. If you if you could choose tomorrow and your career was set and you could do it from wherever in well. the world you wanted to do it, well, where would where would home be? Well,
2: see, it doesn't stop, man. I was in Amsterdam like two months ago. I did some shows in Holland. And God, I love Amsterdam. It's such a nice place. And the clubs were great. All these, There's lots of English-speaking clubs all through Holland. And, of course, you can fly EasyJet for like one, 21 quid back over to England. So, if I was a working, a living comedian, if I didn't pick London in Britain to live, I would... Because there are a few comics based over in France and stuff like that. So, I did, So I loved it there. Um, I would love to have the stand-up comedy lifestyle that you can get out of Britain, but have it in L.A. That would be the perfect combination. Because, of course, I work on a TV show in L.A. So, oh my God, that would be... Because I do like the lifestyle of L.A. I like the... You know, it's not as smoggy as you've heard, but uh, it's, I was just going to say, the fresh air, which nobody will ever believe, but it really is.
0: The open Um, air, at
2: least. Yes, the open air and the sunshine, and I bike to work. Um, So it's hard. So there's elements of each, because the stand-up comedy in America is not the standard of stand-up comedy in Europe.
0: What is the difference, do you think?
2: uh, Stand-up comedy in America is more uh, generated towards fame. Whereas I think stand-up comedy in Europe is more is more a piece of art, you know. It's a, the audience is respected as a piece of art. Um, you know, they'll they come for a night out as well at comedy clubs and stuff. Whereas in America, I mean, this is a, a bit of a stereotype, but for the most part, in America, they come to a Fame Spot to to go out. Like some of the questions Americans will ask or even want to hear before a comedy gig is, "What credits does this person have? Were they were they in a?" Fast food commercial, or an episode of CSI Miami, whereas I mean, as you well know, even here, here, uh, an MC or a compare, they won't even say that before the. Before they just they just say Alice oh, Fraser and they just bring you on and it's yeah. up to you to captivate them with those first couple of sentences or with the way you walk on the stage and off we go, and in America. That's not the way you're introduced. You are introduced as he does this, he's a writer on the Jim Jeffries show, or like they need those credits so that the American, American audience can initially go, oh, 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 okay then. So that's a huge difference, and on top of that, your sets are not as long. So,
0: so less room to play.
2: Less room to play, less room to develop a full narrative, a full arc, you know, maybe even tell stories a la Billy Connolly style or the way a lot of uh, uh, i say us the mm-hmm. way a lot of us british comedians uh well, you're, have, you're sort of uh, a colonial as well yeah but also i learned i learned up comedy over here so i tell i tell a lot of stories and stuff and and for me and you know i'm here doing another hour long edinburgh show which, which has probably six good stories in it so that's not, yeah. So I
0: wonder how much the American sensibility will shift, at least in part, because of the demand for content from streaming services. So I think part of the reason why there is more kind of arty comedy over here, other than the kind of cultural traditions, is that you have this festival circuit turn over an hour every year. And you yeah. cannot turn over an hour of jokes every year unless you're wildly prolific. There has to... Yeah. Or it's not easy. It becomes almost necessary to have a spine in there of a story or something something that that holds it together. Not just that holds it together, because that implies that a story is less than just jokes. It's it's hold it together and distinguish you from the other six acts that an audience member will be seeing in the day at a festival. It has to be you. Yeah, it can't just be
2: your jokes. Yeah, it's a piece of you. Yeah. So
0: I wonder if that'll happen more in America with this kind of Netflix Because th- it Amazon. definitely
2: exists. There's definitely artists in America who do, who do do that approach. I guess it's just not it just doesn't feel like it's the main the mainstream approach. And also maybe that's because I live in I live in Hollywood right now and to me it does seem like every night at, at all the clubs around LA they're mostly made up of t- people doing 10 minute sets to try to sell themselves as a stereotype or get themselves into a box so that they'll fit into that TV pilot or, you know, or these other opportunities. Which is
0: very hard to do well. Uh, I don't want to underrate it, but it's also probably my least favorite thing to watch.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's my least favorite thing to do because when you really want to stretch your... Like like the last three months here in Britain and Holland and Ireland have been amazing because I've been working on this. One hour show Like we said at the top Of the podcast It feels like Oh I've got eight more Performances of this One hour show And then I do have to Go back to America And go back to doing The ten minute Like you know I'm from I'm, My ten minutes in, in America Is generally about Being from uh, Two countries With socialized medicine That's I hold on to that piece I don't know if you Remember that yeah, From my show yeah. But that's the, My ten in America is Is, is attacking them For their health care So that'll be As a Canadian Who lived in Britain As well So that's generally my 10, and then my 25 to 30 when I open for gym is just kind of sometimes whatever I'm in the mood for, for the night, and just turn it up, and uh, because it's big theaters and stuff, so you just kind of perform the hell out of whatever pieces you've chosen. But you've also got
0: a job there, which is to warm up the audience, so you can't take that many risks.
2: No, not at all. You get to dabble. You can dabble with a little, with a premise. Yeah. And then you have to let that premise sit in your head for a night and then the next night you do the premise and maybe two lines and then hopefully after about 7 gigs of opening for him then all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a bit but but yeah you can't do it. so so that to go back to the original question to so that I, so I love the lifestyle in LA but man I love being a British comedian more so if there was ever which there will never be but if there was ever a way to be to be those two things that would be uh, so that would be a pretty amazing combination
0: Need to knock on the door of some sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneur and get them to invent some some very fast tunnels between LA and yeah. London.
2: Well this might be the only way to do it. Maybe you just have to make those commitments and come over more often and you know, like we'll see what the coming year has to do. Like we have ten more episodes of I mean it's a good problem to have, isn't it? So working on the T V show. So should the T V show go away, then then yeah, then maybe I'll have to try to find a way to monetize it well enough so that the travel expenses don't eat too much into it and then start hitting those markets where the one hour shows are more popular and and we'll see but i definitely love i definitely love uh you know when i lived in britain i didn't realize how much i was going to miss the stand-up comedy scene of of britain and europe all together but i but i do not miss the british reign at all and i will say like because that's what was really driving me nuts. I was just so wet every every day <laughs> for a while. And I was like, i got to give, you know what, I'll give LA a shot. And I swear to God, in my 15 years living in Britain, I owned one pair of shorts that were for, like, the gym occasionally. But every day is a jeans day. In Britain, basically, and uh, in LA now, I bike to work. I bike to my our TV studios for three
0: pairs of shorts and, for every day of the week. And yeah,
2: I'm up to five shorts. What? I so I'm, start, <laughs> I'm starting. So I'm starting to think maybe I measure joy of life. You know, the
0: shorts and, metric and, and for it, happiness. It's the
2: shorts metric, man. I so I now own f- five pairs of shorts.
0: If you can't see his knees, is, is, he's a sad man. <laughs>
2: that's... that's That is a strong possibility, man. So I quite like that.
0: So tell people where where they can find you online.
2: Um, Well, online, my social media stuff is JJ Whitesnake, generally, on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And and also, if you just Google JJ Whitehead, I'm sure you will uh, eventually find me. Um, I do most of the things, except for... The ones that I can't think of to say right now. Uh, I was going to say Pinterest, but that's not a... <laughs> that's,
0: a that's a thing, but that's you don't a, do it? Yeah.
2: Sna- do you do
0: Snapchat? I'm
2: sure. Ah, see, I'm... I've, yeah, I don't do Snapchat. No. You
0: do Instagram, Twitter, Facebook.
2: That's about it, yeah. Weibo? Yeah, what's Weibo?
0: <laughs> it's the, I think it's the Chinese one.
2: Yeah, I'm not on Weibo. I'm not on Shim Sham or Squoobalop. Uh, none of those. There's one where, what do they do with the picture? There's a photo one that's always popping up. But anyway, those the ones, I'm on.
0: Thank you so much for having tea with me, JJ.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: The hoppers at every frame. Loudly rifle dawn, loudly rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying, Damn you offers cry up your ends. Loudly rifle all loudly rifle day. And when the boss. He looks round the door, tie our ends it up it door, first it's he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally right all day, lally right all day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow, or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames And wait for Elsie to return again Loudy right for the, loudy right for day.